Welcome to Still Becoming, a podcast about how it's never too late to become more free, more yourself, or try something new. I'm Monica DeCristina, a wife, mother, and practicing psychotherapist. Through my own journey, starting with my struggles with anxiety years ago, that led to my professional work as a therapist now, I am fascinated with the process of how we become who we are. We will hear from people telling their stories of becoming, of unbecoming, and overcoming, as well as from experts helping us learn about our own process in the world. We are not designed to stay the same. Our stories are still being written. We are all still becoming. I am so excited to have therapist and author Nicole Zazowski on the Still Becoming podcast today. Now, Nicole is here talking about her new book, From Lost to Found, and it's available for pre-order now, and I'll give you all those links, and I think after this interview, you're going to want to order it right away. We get to dive into the power of her story. And just a little sneak peek, Nicole walks us through in this book and a little bit in this interview, a really painful season in her life. And then the transformation that didn't happen externally, but happened internally. Nicole talks about going first. And what she means by this is sharing her story first, so then we can all reflect back and look at our own lives. The details may be different, but the truths and the hope offered are the same. I can't wait for you to hear this interview. Well, I want to just start with, um, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, about who you are and the work that you do, and then we'll start diving into this amazing book. Oh, thank you so much. Sure. So my name is Nicole. I am a marriage and family therapist in Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, And that work mostly includes my private practice there, but also includes, I think the last time I was on, I talked about um, the marriage intensives I do in Georgia. And then I am a wife and mom to two boys now. I just had my second boy last week. It's amazing. Yes. Yes. We're so thrilled. He's such a love. Um, (laughs) How's, how's everyone adjusting to, um, a new baby in the house? You know, so far so good. It's like, I, I hold my breath saying that. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I know it's been one week. Um, yeah. And we've had a lot of grandparent support, which is wonderful because they're all from out of town. So they they are not opposed to getting on planes and flying across the country, and we're really grateful for that. Um, but the the spacing is also three and a half years between my two boys. So I think in many ways, while there's benefits to being very close together, I think there's some 
some perks around this time of being three and a half years apart. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. They can just understand more. Exactly. Well, then, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, your new book, um, From Lost to Found. Um, I want to just start with, if you could tell us a little bit about writing it and and why this was a story you wanted to tell, a little bit about the story. Um, And and before we dive into that, I just want to say it was such a powerful experience to read. Um, It really is. Yeah, just in the combination of your just real humanness and relatability with your expertise as a therapist was just like... It was amazing. I was, you know, it, it, it really was. It read like an amazing story. Like I didn't want to put it down. I really wanted to see what was going to happen next. And then, I, I mean, I was just pulling all these truths, just underlining and underlining things that could apply to me, could apply to clients, things that I felt before, never thought of it like that. So it's just, it's just a beautiful thing that you put together. Thank you so much. I, I mean, my biggest prayer is that people feel both encouraged and challenged um, to accept, you know, whatever invitation they see in those pages for themselves. And, but I, I wanted to go first with my own story um, and then encourage readers to, you know, though they the details of their story might be different than mine um, to process what these universal truths um, God's truth means for them. So that you could not have given me a kinder compliment. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, well, tell us about, you know, just, uh, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to spoil it for everyone about all the story, <laughs> but but tell us a little bit, just, you know, high level about this story and, and why this one, you know, which has its own little stories all through it, why this felt important for um, this story to be in this book. Yeah. So when I wasn't looking for it, God took me on about a nine year (laughs) journey. And in many ways, I'm still on it. I mean, you read the last chapter, but it's not like everything is solved and fixed and tied up with a bow. Um, Sure. uh, And so in, in some ways, looking from the outside in, nothing had changed. But everything had changed inside of me. And I realized um, that I had spent my career helping people find peace and joy outside of circumstance, Um, you know, helping them find an identity that lasts and an enduring hope. And I didn't realize until this story began that I was personally missing out on the freedom that I was so passionate about helping other people find. In many ways, I could speak the wisdom, but I wasn't brave enough to choose it for myself um, because my old way of living was kind of working for me. And I'm sure we'll get into some of the details around my performance um, coping mechanism, sure. uh, among other things. But yes. it's it's a sneaky one because it's uh, culturally celebrated in many ways. And so... Um, the curse of that, so to speak, is that you kind of fly under the radar and it can look like things are going very well. And so that kept me numb to the actual freedom um, that I desperately craved, um, but wouldn't have been brave enough to let go of my other life to, to choose. And so I'm learning that sometimes God's rescue looks like prying our fingers off of things um, that we think we want. 
so that he can set us free. And that's really what he's done for me these last nine years. He took a story I would not have written for myself um, and gave me transformation that I can now say I wouldn't trade, even though, you know, to be honest, Monica, I'm still not yeah. sure I would write that story um, for myself because there's many things that have been so painful. But yes, if I had to go through it, and I think this is true for all of our pain, if we have to go through it, you know, what treasures can we pick up in the wake of what's been lost? Um, mm, yes. Yeah. You know, it, I, I just love your honesty about that, that it isn't a story that you would even choose now. And, you know, as a reader, um, that really that really makes me lean my ear in, mm-hmm. you know, because there's so much authenticity in that, that, you know, I think that we can all sort of relate to that. And yet you don't leave us there, right? There's there's so much hope that you found um, in it. And I, I just, I so appreciate the the honesty with which you bring all this hope um, into the story or lived it really. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Well, let's, let's start with, you know, I wanted to just for this interview um, to, you know, to let the readers that I'm sure are going to, you know, love it and not want to put it down like me, but just to pull out some of these amazing, powerful truths that um, that you encountered that I think apply to so many of us. Yeah. Um, and, and the one that I wanted to start with was just this idea of experiencing disappointment. Yeah. Um, and that sometimes or oftentimes, and I could I could relate to this myself, and I could I've seen it in other people. When we experience disappointment, we then start to feel like we're the disappointment. Mm-hmm. It's a really subtle sh- slide or shift into that. So, can we start with just talking about you know that experience for you of realizing that that's where your heart was going, and then what is actually true? Absolutely. So, I think when you are someone who Uh, has a tendency to link your identity so closely to your performance or how you are received by other people, then the the, um, peril of that is that you are only as good as your last performance um, or your ability to please that person. So um, I had been living my life and I still struggle with this. It's a a constant discipline to undo, but I had been living my life kind of like a roller coaster. Like how I felt on a given day was largely based on how I performed or Mm -hmm. whether or not somebody received that performance well. And so I think when your identity is so closely tied to your performance, when you experience disappointment, it's very hard for you to be able to say, that was disappointing. I feel disappointed, but my value is still whole. I am not the disappointment. Yes. And separating that Mm -hmm. uh, because it's unrealistic to think that we're not going to feel disappointed. I mean, life doesn't always go our way and there's lots of heartache and in different forms, but there's a huge difference between having those painful feelings and turning on ourselves and deciding that we are no good because of it. So that was an aha moment for me when the rug got pulled out from under me early on in this story. Mm-hmm. I wanted to then pivot a little bit into, you know, 
your worth and significance, which ties into this for me, that I think that we are all on this roller coaster and we don't realize it, as you said. I think the roller coaster is so subtle and almost, you know, we don't notice that we're up and down every day. Um, and that we do then find our worth and significance in how people approve of us. Um, and I love then how you shift that and you say, no, that what we actually need to do is work from um, a place of knowing our significance and our worth. I felt like I was in the chair with you when you had this meeting with a therapist. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I just, I was like squirming in my chair reading it. Um, this, you know, this meeting with this therapist that her approval at that time was important to you. Mm -hmm. And I think we all know what that feels like, right? We we're all sort of reaching like, well, this person's further ahead. Surely if they approve of me, then I'm okay. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, tell us a little bit about that story, you know, as we talk about experiencing disappointment and then the worth and significance. Yeah. So I think when, when the rug got pulled out from under me and I experienced that pain of uh, not really knowing who I was without my reputation and all the things I had left behind and a lot of the disappointments I had endured at that point, I grabbed for my old security blankets. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and one of those was if I can just get the people that I deem impressive to be impressed with me, then I can feel good about myself and I can feel secure about the world moving forward. And so there was this woman I got connected to. She was, um, you know, a very well-regarded therapist in town, a neighboring town of Westport. Um, and I, you know, got a, a meeting with her. Essentially, it wasn't an interview, but it was, you know, a, a coffee in her home. But I was sort of hoping it would turn into a job offer at, at her private practice because it was similar to what I had left behind in California. And so I, I mean, it's kind of a story of hilarity um, in that <laughs> chapter. Great. But, mm -hmm. uh, I pulled out all the stops, you know, I basically making myself um, into this person that I thought she would approve of. I left no stone unturned. Um, you bought flowers. I mean, just totally. Yeah. Way overpriced, by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I bought, I brought flowers. I, you know, I was, I rehearsed answers ahead of time. I mean, it was just beyond what a normal interview prep would be. And it's not even a interview. So right. I show up and clearly, as you know, things are not going well from the beginning. Um, mm -hmm. The whole, you know, as I like to say, the cheese just slid out right off the cracker right away. Yeah. I mean, it was there was no taking it back. Yeah. And, you know, so I'm answering her rapid fire questions. And then she looks at me and kind of cuts me off and says, you know, people are going to take one look at you and realize that you have absolutely nothing of worth to say. Oh, gosh. I mean. And totally not okay. I mean, it was, it was, uh. I, I think definitely a painful thing for yes. her to say. Yes. Um, and not, you know, what what I would hope to say to somebody in my position. Um, Absolutely. That, yeah. <laughs> it's good to point that and, out. Yeah. Right. But I think what stayed with me was when I left her house, I felt like my entire identity was left inside. Mm. And I, again, grabbed for that old security blanket and phoned a friend 
And what I wanted that friend to say was, oh my goodness, she's so wrong and you're so right and you're perfect for the job and um, you have all the gifts you need in your own strength to be an awesome therapist, you know. And all of my, all my friends said was, Nicole, when you're called, you're called. Mm. And I, <laughs> I would have wanted the friend to say all those things that you listed Right, first right, also. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was very yeah. unsatisfying um, yeah. because yes. I still, when your identity is in the approval of others, again, you're only, you're only essentially as good as your last conversation. So right. she wasn't filling the hole that that other therapist had left and but what it, the gift that it gave me was that it was it revealed to me that I was waiting for human permission to run on God's mission. Wow. And I had never realized that before that that God's call I I was adding a bunch of stuff to it that I thought I needed um including the approval of others and being sort of perfect for the job. But I realized I don't want my life to speak to my own capabilities. I want my life to this to speak to the God who called me. And we don't need to look very far in the Bible to to see stories of him using unlikely people. I mean, quite frankly, I can't think of one where he used a, a likely person. <laughs> <laughs> right, know? right, right. Um, that's true. And I think that's so. We are so aware of his strength moving through our weakness, being so much stronger and better off in that position than in our own strength. So that's what that situation sort of gave me to carry forward. Um, it is such a powerful um, story. And I think partly because we can all relate to that. I mean, I think you said it perfectly too today when you said, you know, we all, we sort of deem who we think is the person we need the approval from. And it's going to be different, you know, for everyone listening today, it's going to be, you know, maybe it's going to be, you know, someone in your field, maybe it's going to be your mother-in-law, maybe it's going to be um, someone on Instagram. But I think that we all sort of put people in that place and, and then we wait for their permission. And I love that you, you know, sort of walked us through a failure of being able to find that. And then the freedom that comes from just being on mission of what God's called you to do. Um, it's so amazing. And this one part that I just keep thinking about since I read the book where you said that no amount of affirmation from the outside can heal the inside. Mm -hmm. And and that's just a totally a direction shifter for all of mm -hmm. us. Yeah, it was for me because I realized that, yeah, nothing received from the outside can heal the internal messages that I continue to tell myself. And it, it always feels nice to receive affirmation and we should keep doing that for one another and encouraging each other. But we are not powerful enough to heal the brokenness on the inside. Um, even though we can, we can be a part of that healing. We can't, we can't be responsible for all of that. That's so good. And we can't be responsible for doing that in other people. Well, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. I love that. Well, then let's talk about some of the, um, the relational experiences and truths in the book. Um, you know, I, I loved how you, you just sort of, um, I don't know how to put this. Let me see if I can figure out how to put this. But you point out things that um, I think sort of fade into the wallpaper that we don't even notice we're living with, mm -hmm. right? 
um, and and you sort of bring them out, sort of highlight them, and all of a sudden you can really like see them and see yourself um, in them. At least that was my experience reading it. And and I loved when you talked about um, being a friend and being a good friend that you really used to believe, and I know we all still struggle with this, um, but that to be a close to someone or to be loved, you had to be the perfect friend, right? And and instead realizing experientially that that vulnerability was what actually connects us to people. And I know that many of us hear that, um, you know, now in our popular language sure. that, you know, thanks to Brene Brown exactly. is, kind of par- <laughs> is, is part of, is part of like all of our language. Um, but it's really, really, a whole different thing to experience that and to be, you know, vulnerable, literally enough to experience that. So I was wondering if we could sort of start by talking about, you know, what that experience and that that realization, how that's enriched your life, that vulnerability is what produces intimacy. Yeah, I think it's been a, a powerful um, change for me. I think it started at this dinner where you know, I wasn't necessarily trying to impress this friend, this new friend with my accomplishments or anything, but like you said, kind of wanted to meet all of her needs and and be the kind of person that she would want to be friends with. And God kind of twisted the tables on me, turned the tables. He, he, I, I asked her a question that led her um, to share a piece of her story that uh, she at the time hadn't shared with very many people. And she's a dear friend of mine now. And I was so captivated by her story, but I was also captivated by what was going on inside of me because it was a story that was hard for her to tell. And like I said, she hadn't shared it at the time with very many people. And I was a new friend. I mean, I, I was not somebody that had known her very long. And yet what was going on inside of me was I I went to the dinner liking her and I left loving her. (laughs) Um, And it just showed me how drawn I was to um, people's authenticity and hearing the ways that God is working through the broken parts of their story and weaving weaving redemption and hope into those places and even, even current struggles. And so, uh, it was a lesson for me that we are drawn to each other because our vulnerabilities, not our capabilities. And before I thought it was, you know, kind of the friendship version of (laughs) the way I approached that, that job interview, um, that the, the better I can be, the more you will like me. And obviously we all have gifts to offer friendship and we should absolutely do that. But that's, that's not what knits us together as human beings. It's more the experience of being with and sitting in the mud with each other. (laughs) Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, okay. I want to shift then um, just a little bit to um, our relationship with God then. And, you know, I have never heard anyone sort of put it this way, um, which is that we um, can start when we're in pain, that we can try to perform in it, that we can, you know what, I, I've been given this pain in my life and I'm going to do a really good job. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to be the best person in pain that you've ever seen. Uh-huh. And I'm going to do all the things and I'm going to say all the right prayers and have all the right platitudes. Um, but I've never thought of it as a performance. And, and I think that we can 
all, I, I know myself certainly can relate to that. Okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to do a good job with this. You'll see. So maybe I won't have to experience this again. Yeah. Um, can you walk us through a little bit of this, this painful moment or, or moments and, and then realizing that this performing you said was actually keeping you from God's comfort, which yeah. was the one thing that you needed more than anything. Yeah. So uh, for me, and we all have different versions of this, um, when I experience pain, two of my biggest go-tos are shaming myself, so assuming it's my fault, and then from that place, kind of proving myself or performing my way into someone's good graces. And so what I learned and what I saw for myself, I mean, I I knew it for other people, but I, I could see it for myself now at this point, is that we play out with God the very same things we play out with each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so what was revealed to me is how much um, me experiencing this massive grief, uh, how much I play out that performance with God, that if I can just uh, be a good steward of my grief, which wasn't really a good steward at all. But what I thought, sure. <laughs> what I mm-hmm. thought that was, was you know, be really impressive with it. You know, be strong, uh, be, you know, always talk about how grateful I was for what I have, which are not bad things. But when they're when they're driven from a place of needing to win somebody over. And in this case, that was God, which didn't line up at all with what I knew to be true about God. But our pain is that powerful where we'll, we'll do, we'll do things that, um, you know, don't make logical sense, uh, just because we're coping. So, yeah, in my grief, I just wanted to do a really good job. And what that meant was that I kept, I, I wasn't honest with God. I didn't come to him with my questions. I didn't come to him with any feelings that I, I don't believe in this term, but I deemed to be negative. Right. And I, I kept him out of it. Now, obviously he wasn't out of it. He was in it. Um, but I didn't get to experience his closeness because I was too busy putting up this ridiculous front, (laughs) uh, for, for the God who longs to comfort us. Um, and so I thought if I, I could climb closer to God's favor, I could keep myself safe in the future. And what I realized is that actually God has already stooped to our brokenness and that's the season we're heading into, right? Is, is Advent and him stooping to our brokenness, um, in human form and secured our safety once and for all on the cross. And so I wasn't receiving the safety that I already have and still insisted on climbing this ladder close to his favor. But gosh, the freedom that came when I when I started getting really honest um, was so worth it. And I love that you were um, 
you were honest with, you know, your questions about why this happened. And and, and I hope it's okay if I totally if we talk about what what kind of grief it was. Can you share us? Because this is a this is a really excruciating kind of grief that I think probably a lot of people listening have encountered or maybe know someone that has. Sure. Can you share with us what what was the grief you were going through? And, you know, some of the the shame lies that that came too. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, part of my husband's and I's story is that we have experienced five miscarriages um, in the midst of being blessed with, with two boys. And we have a diagnosis that makes that more likely than not when I get pregnant. So it's an ongoing condition that doesn't have a solution. What it means is a pretty traumatic couple of months of wondering if being so delighted by the gift of life growing inside of me, often even having a heartbeat and then watching, you know, not knowing whether we're going to get to meet that little one this side Mm. of heaven. And so uh, the chapter that you and I are talking about now is in the wake of one of those miscarriages and just wanting so badly for God to see me doing a good job and hoping that I wouldn't have to go through it again. And, but, you know, as he, the Beatitudes have taken on in Matthew five, a a whole new meaning for me because the blessing, you know, you're blessed when you mourn, you're blessed, you know, all these Mm -hmm. things that we don't think of as gifts or blessings, you know, these, these painful experiences. And what I've learned is that there's blessing in any story that inflames our longing for Christ. And again, Monica, I I would not, I don't think I'd still today be brave enough to write that story for myself. But sure, if I had to go through it, I can see that I am a blessed person because it has, it has inflamed my longing for Christ. It's a story that broke me open to transformation in my own heart that I'm not sure would have happened otherwise. Otherwise. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which, which gives all of us so much hope if we are experiencing pain or, you know, inevitably we, we, if you live long enough, we will all encounter some sort of grief and pain, um, that in that there can be a transformative hope that you, we can find that's so powerful. Yeah. And we may not see it right away. I mean, this was a, a nine year journey that I had to and I'm still on it, but I I had to live these words before I wrote them. I think that's a good point too, that, you know, I think so often um, people have such big hearts to share their story um, and they often might feel like they need to be used of God or share their story when they're actually in the middle of it. And, and I hear you saying that that's, that wasn't the case, right? That, no. <laughs> that, at all. And I just think that's a really important thing to take any pressure off anyone listening who's hearing this powerful transformation that you had in these dark, dark times, that the, the transformation and the, the sharing of it came as you passed through it, right? Not in the very middle of it. No. In fact, I had started writing this book in the midst of it, because I was starting to talk about some of these themes and understand that they were resonating with people in my practice and in my personal life. And 
the book is about something completely different than it was when I first started. And I think those, those early drafts were more about my own journaling and processing. And so there was benefit to absolutely to writing in the quiet of my own heart and home. Um, but if you start doing that in the middle of your story, just know that it's, pr- it's probably going to include some more learning and more transformation as you continue to go through because a lot of this stuff was me understanding the details of that story and the pain of it and then stepping away long enough to be able to see what God did through it. And sometimes that takes time. Yes, it does. I think often it takes time. Yes, it does. And and that's, you know, I think important for us to, to all remember, you know, because we certainly want it not to. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we certainly want it not to take time. I would have pressed the fast so, forward yeah. button a few times if I could have. Yes, same. <laughs> many, many, many chapters. This relational part and kind of talking about um, these truths that you learned. One of my... Um, favorite moments in the book and, and and part of it is because I I really saw myself. I said, oh, this is what I do. Um, <laughs> Nicole <laughs> Nicole has my number. Um was was this this incredibly relatable story of you being invited to a country club luncheon. Oh yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> And and the painful event that happened there, and then the realization about your own way of coping with that, which I don't think we talk about very much. Um, so I'm wondering if you could walk us through a little bit of, of, of that story and, and how you coped with it. Because um, I think so many of us listening will say, oh, that's me. That's me. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, good. I'm glad I'm not alone. <laughs> no, you're definitely not alone. Um, yeah, it's it's not something I loved admitting about myself. But I think one of the ways uh, I live in an extremely affluent area, um, and people are are talk about identity. People are highly concerned with where they went to college, and often that's an Ivy League, and what jobs they have, and where they live, and just very external, uh, base their identity off external things. And so this luncheon is sort of known as like kind of a who's who uh-huh. kind of thing event. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I think I was early mid twenties at the time, um, that I went to this luncheon and, you know, didn't have d- the designer clothing that everybody was wearing. And I just, I felt extremely intimidated and very inferior. Um, and I felt very judged for who I, you know, how I was looking. And, um, even though I tried my best to look nice and I was standing in the corner alone and I looked, I was, it's, you know, how awkward that is. I mean, they're, Oh, it's, I just can feel it right now. It was this like very (laughs) cringy moment. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, and I, you know, I'm looking for a familiar face or a way to look busy where I'm not just standing there. Right, right. Um, and I spot somebody and I, I knew her well enough, you know, to go and pursue a conversation. So I, I walked over there and she sort of 
I saw her eyeing me up and down, you know, like skinny. Oh, just like a movie. Yeah, no, it was total like middle school for grownups. And then, yeah. and then she sort of like closed the gap in her circle. Like, please don't come over here. I closed you out. Um, yes, closed me out. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And oh. so I, I obviously felt highly judged by her. Um, but what it took a while to realize was that I dealt with that by becoming very self-righteous and judging her back, like sort of controlling the situation by, you know, making myself feel better by saying, well, I care about the right things and, um, you know, sort of using self-righteousness to manage my own pain, um, around feeling not good enough and unsafe. So, you know, the story, the luncheon ends, uh, I had, you know, just been narrating in my own head everything that's wrong with these people, um, <laughs> yes. which I, I, I mean, yes, I've done that. I think that so many of us have done that when we're in pain, but we just have not named that. Sure. Um, yeah. Go um, ahead. And then I'm at, I'm at church the following Sunday and obviously I feel comfortable. It feels like my family, these are my people. And mm-hmm. um, I was scheduled to serve communion and at the way that that works at my church is that the communion servers stand at the front and then aisle by aisle, everyone sort of funnels to the front um, and circles back to their seat. And so there's this line of people and I'm, I'm in charge of the bread. Um, And so I tear a piece of the bread off and I say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And this woman that snubbed me at the luncheon doesn't even go to my church. And so I look up and she is halfway back in my line. It's so crazy. I know. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, communion is such a sacred experience for me um, in terms of, I just get teary every time I do it. It just feels like one of those thin places where heaven's just a little bit closer. Mm -hmm. And so I'm so glad because I felt the juxtaposition between that and the feelings that I still harbored in my heart toward her. And I think, I think her and the people that she represented in my mind, like people that value things that, you know, are different than what I have. Um, and so she was sort of a representation at that point. And I said, I I was really honest with God, like, you got to help me out. I can't, (laughs) I can't serve this woman communion. Like she's intruding on the sacred space. And so she, the next thing I know, I look up and she's there and I tear that bread. And all of a sudden I just break down in my own way and realize that, you know, not my focus shifts from what she did to what Christ did for both of us and, and what was broken for both of us and that we are all, and this was a hard pill for me to swallow at the time, but I'm really glad we are all equally in need of Christ. You know, some of our sin is more obvious than others. Some of it's more culturally acceptable than others. Some of the way we cope with pain is quiet. Some of it's loud you know, the ground is completely level at the foot of the cross. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Um, There is no high ground. There is no closer, you know, or, or further apart. And so that was just a huge lesson for me that I need this just as much as she does. And my judgment of her 
even though, you know, it came from a self-righteous place was no more, uh, okay than, than the way she judged me. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think that we, we so often don't realize that in our pain, when we feel rejected or inferior, we are finding ourselves doing the same thing that caused us pain, right? Yep. Right. right. I mean, maybe just in our head and, you know, yep. maybe to a text to a friend. Yes. Um, but, but, but we're really doing the same thing. And, and, and I just found that to be so eye-opening and, and so hopeful, you know, that that's the kind of love that I think we all really recognize and want to live in. Absolutely. Um, you know, but it's just recognizing that in our pain, what we do instead, you know? Mm-hmm. Love that. Well, I want to get to a couple more things. Um, I could talk to you forever about this <laughs> stuff, but I'm going to try to keep us on track. Um, okay, so you talk about Jeremiah 29 11 in the book. And so for those listening that may not know, it's, you know, it's this really beautiful, but also, you know, frequently used, you know, on, on mm-hmm. um, Pinterest or calligraphy. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's just, it's a well-known, even if someone doesn't, you know, read the Bible, they may have heard this, that sure. for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future, which is so beautiful. It's probably in every graduation gift, you know, right. card, and, and it's wonderful. And I, I have always thought of it as you know, I will give you these things in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Don't worry, I've got good plans for you. And in the book, you talk about, and and tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but it gives me chills that, no, your life is happening now. Mm -hmm. And this prospering is happening now if we can have the eyes to see it Mm -hmm. in the midst of the pain and the struggle and the disappointments and the unwanted things. Yeah. No, I I too have hung my hat on that verse (laughs) as a promise of like, ooh, I know what a prosperous life looks like. Yeah, exactly. I've got a great picture of that. It's coming. If I just wait long Uh enough, it's coming. You know, I am promised this. Um, and I had never really read that verse in context. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and what was happening at the time, just because I think it's helpful for me uh, to understand it, is, you know, the Israelites were sort of camped out um, and they had received all this prophecy that, you know, just hang on, good times are coming, you know, just wait a little bit longer. And so what they did was they sort of didn't invest um in their lives at all in what was happening in the present. So they weren't engaged with their neighbors. They weren't, um, you know, seeking the welfare of, uh, which is what Jeremiah then tells them to do, like seek the welfare of, of the place that you are, even if these pe- the your neighbors are different than who you are. And he tells them, so they've received all these fro- false prophecies. And then Jeremiah comes and says, no, your life is, is happening right now. I want you to plant fruit trees, which is discouraging because it could take forever for fruit trees to grow. Yeah, right. So right, yeah. I'm sure the Israelites were like, oh, that, that doesn't, we don't want that to be worth it. <laughs> it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> no. It doesn't sound like we're leaving. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and then Jeremiah says, you know, that, that God says, for I know the plans I have for you. Um, mm, mm-hmm. and, and that the, the prospering is actually happening 
now. And it ties into another chapter that I talk about, you know, we can be so tied to our vision of what prospering looks like that we will completely miss God's provision in what's happening currently, mm-hmm. whether that's, you know, a, a less than ideal situation or getting to know neighbors, you know, literally <laughs> in the place mm-hmm. that we are. But I had, I had sort of been waiting to feel settled in our new home in Connecticut. And I, I think I end the chapter by saying, I never want to lose my sense of being sent, even in, in settling that prospering is happening now, regardless of whether it looks like what I want it to or thought it would look like. Which is such a attainable view of gratitude, Mm -hmm. you know, that, you know, when we just have these sort of blinders on, and this is when I'm doing well and, and, and I'm happy, this is what it will look like. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and then, and this is what God will do for me. This is the picture. Um, but instead, no, you know, stopping and looking all around that, it is now that, you know, you say there's a some line where I, I, of course, underlined it, but your mm-hmm. life is happening now. Um, and it's just such a attainable and powerful reminder of us. And then we start to see all the good, right? you know, which, which is sometimes, let's be honest, it, you know, which your book is about in certain seasons is a lot harder to initially see totally. than in others. Yeah. And it, it, and knowing that it is a choice, like, uh, which is both empowering and overwhelming because yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. uh-huh. um, we get to decide how am I going to look at this day and am I going to choose hope? Or am I going to choose to see what is good or am I going to constantly be looking and waiting for what isn't? Absolutely. Um, which which brings me to kind of our last couple of things I want to talk about with choice is that um, you talk about that choosing hope, you know, um, and on the heels of this beautiful quote um, from your mentors who are amazing therapists, mm-hmm. Terry and Sharon Hargraves. <laughs> yes, but they 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 told you on a on a meaningful phone call or conversation that hope only gets employed or deployed. Deployed. Yep. Deployed <laughs> in times of struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you talk about choosing hope. So I'm wondering as we wrap up and get to our last question after this, if you could tell us about this idea of choosing hope, because I think we kind of, or at least myself, I kind of sit with my hands open, hoping to feel hopeful, you know? Yeah. So tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly been there more often than not too, um, waiting for that feeling before I'm willing to follow. <laughs> And I think for a long time, I was really afraid of hope. And, and still, even with this uh, last pregnancy, I actually wrote it in a card to my husband when I told him that I was pregnant. And we had coincidentally just seen Wicked like a few nights before in, in New York City. And there's a, a line from Wicked that says, uh, wishing only wounds the heart. Um And that really resonated with me, especially, you know, like, what is the point of hope? Like, why hope if it just, you know, further to fall, if it doesn't work, you know? So I I do what 
it's a phrase actually from my mom. <laughs> I have this tendency to practice disappointment. I can relate. Oh, good. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just keep myself low to the ground so I can be surprised. Right. Um, <laughs> right. But, <laughs> but I'm not going to have as far to fall when this doesn't work out. What I realized is that actually you protect yourself from all of it when you do that. Mm. Miss, oh, yeah. Even in the midst of the disappointment, if that does happen, you miss the joy that comes from um, the closeness of your community or the intimacy of me grieving with my husband um, in a closer way. And there's, there's pain there certainly, but um, I don't want to miss that joy. And so it, it feels weird to even call it joy because the feelings are so raw and painful, but there is joy there in, in connection. And so a verse that that I have been brought to again and again is from Romans 5. And it's just this idea that suffering produces perseverance, and then perseverance produces character, and then character produces hope. Wow. And hope doesn't disappoint because it always brings us to the giver of all gifts that we don't have to, if, if we put a hope in a certain outcome, then yes, we are going to be disappointed if we hang all of our hope on a particular outcome. And it doesn't always lead us to a different answer, (laughs) but it does lead us to the steadfast character of God. Mm -hmm. And that is not going to disappoint us. Even as I say this to you, this is something that I speak and choose and don't always feel. Sure. Um, But we don't, ask only because it changes our circumstances. We ask because it changes us. Because to me, even prayer felt painful at times. Like, why am I asking for this? You know, what does it mean if it doesn't happen? And it was a turning point for me to realize, yes, I'm going to keep asking for a change and for a certain outcome. But that's not the only reason I ask. (laughs) I also ask because it changes me and something in that exchange between me being honest with God changes something inside of me in our relationship between the two of us. And so that is what I mean by choosing it versus waiting to feel it. Because if you wait to feel it, there's some situations I'm just not ever, I'm not sure you'll ever get there, depending on the circumstances. You know, what what I love about that vision of hope is that it is something that we can choose in our pain. And and it also highlights that when we numb ourselves to the hope, we numb ourselves to the connection that we could feel that would be so comforting, right? Mm-hmm. Back, back to kind of what we talked about before, performing in our pain. We numb ourselves to that connection with our loved ones and with God. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I love that. And I, and I hope that you know, as we're all sort of listening to this interview and listening to your words, that we can be reminded that wherever we are, that that hope is a choice. It's not something that, and and I don't say that lightly. No. Um. And your and your story doesn't say that lightly at all. Good. I mean, it just it, it's it is it is it is so um realistic about the pain and the hope. Um. But it's also comforting that even in these dark moments. 
if, you know, if hope is a, a choice, then it, it feels not to overuse a word, but less hopeless, mm-hmm. right? There's less, there's less of a sliding down in a, into a darkness in that. So yeah. thank you for that. Absolutely. Um, and then the last question that I'm asking everyone, which is, um, what is one person or event that helped you become who you are today? Um, and, and, and I know it's a big question and so maybe it's more than one, but just in relation to this beautiful book and, um, this story that you so generously share with all of us, what would, what do you think is, is someone or, or, or an event or something that helped you become who you are through this story? Hmm. It's such a good question. And obviously, I mean, you read it, so you know the many people who've had their fingerprints on this story and and the many people God used, Um, you know, my mentors being one of them that you mentioned just a few minutes ago. I think broadly, I think of um, the five little lives that I'm going to meet in heaven that, you know, my my miscarried babies, um, I think... I obviously haven't spoken to them or, or gotten to know who they are, but goodness, did did God use um, what happened uh, and, and their their loss? I don't think He caused it. I and I know He didn't cause it, but He didn't waste it either. And it's um, their lives are the lives and and the the story that taught me that a blessed life is really a life of growth and intimacy with Christ. Um, and we all have our version of that story. You know, I obviously mine is largely characterized by infertility and, and miscarriage, but I wrote the book and, and hopefully this comes through. I wrote the book in what we call plural where as I'm telling, going first and, and sharing my story and talking about these truths in the context of that story, that I'm really inviting the reader to process whatever it is that their version of, <laughs> whatever their version is of this, because none of us go through life unscathed. We all will encounter seasons of waiting or seasons of loss or seasons where life just didn't turn out the way we thought it would. And the invitation that's embedded in that, even if it's not what we would have chosen for ourselves, is just too precious to waste. And these are not, what I'm learning is that these are not consolation prizes. It's not like, well, you missed the good life, so right, right. Here, here you go. Like, and I, I did kind of used to think of it like that. I, I really worried that. I, I think I even say this in the book. I, I worried that my good life would always look like broccoli on the dinner plate. Like, right, always yes. what was good for me instead of something that was that I would think was good. And God has just really used the story to shift my heart in understanding that. He is always the gift. <laughs> the giver, the giver of all gifts is always the gift. And goodness, am I grateful that I get to mother my two boys. Um, yes. And the gift of their life is not lost on me. But mm-hmm. I think one of the things I've learned is that they're not the the hinge of my hope either. Um, you know, as, as grateful as I am for them and as much as I treasure them, 
you know, my ultimate hope is still in Christ. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a good thing to long and ask and approach God with our desires in life. I talk about this when I talk about um, the story of Jesus in the boat in the midst of the storm that, you know, our hope is not in the calm storm or whatever we think of is, you know, our peace and joy is on the far side of a solution or a dream realized or a goal achieved. It's always in, in Christ. And so, and that sounds trite in some ways, but when you've processed through that transformation, you start to realize, okay, he is the gift as grateful as I am for all the many earthly gifts I've been given. I love that. And, and, you know, the, the depth of your story, um, and the suffering that you went through takes any triteness out of you saying that, right? That it's, I hope so. Oh, absolutely. And I think that no matter what anyone believes that might be listening, that I think we all at the core know that our joy and our hope it can't be in something as fickle as getting what we want or as mm-hmm. life going how we want. Yeah. And and you walk us through this beautiful, really transformation internally while not getting what you wanted externally. Um, and there's so much hope in that. And I thank you for, I love how you said going first. And, and I thank you for doing that. You really do that with this book. And um, and it is such a warm invitation for us to then all, as we're reading, kind of reflect back on, well, where do I see myself in this? You know, and, and how can this help transform where I feel hopeless or disconnected? So thank you for going first. I love that. Thank you so much. I hope that you enjoyed this interview with Nicole as much as I did. I hope that you feel as much hope as I felt in talking with her. She really does go first, as she said. She lets us in to her own story and her own story of pain and disappointment. And in that authenticity, we walk with her and find hope and these powerful truths. Some of my favorite ones are learning to move from a place of worth and significance, not finding that in external people. And that somebody outside of us, can their approval can never heal what's happening inside of us. And finally, as we wrap up this idea of choosing hope and finding your hope in a person and not in your circumstances. She talks about finding your hope in God and not in your circumstances. If you want to learn more about Nicole and where to find this awesome book, go to the show notes and we'll have everything linked there. In addition to that, we will have a link to where you can pre-order the book and get some fun free things along with it. For more information, please go to stillbecoming.net. Please subscribe and review Still Becoming wherever you listen to podcasts if you like what you heard here today. Please follow along on Instagram. You can find me at Monica DeCristina. Thank you for listening.